Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're on Team Human, where we embrace the ambiguity. Strive for those liminal places between yes or no, left or right, and show both the engines of capitalism and the robots of corporatism what we're made of. In the distance there is truth, which ends like night. The bridge we have laid will always give us life. We've got a special holiday show for you today. A conversation with industrial music legend Genesis Briar P. Orridge. I met Genesis back when they were a he, a founding member of the Coombe Transmissions, Throbbing Gristle, and Psychic TV, as well as the associated anti-cult Temple of Psychic Youth. He was also almost single-handedly responsible for the new primitives movement of piercing and scarification. He made music, art, and videos in the cut-up style first fashioned by Brian Geisen and William Burroughs, including a video of a mock abortion that got him labeled as a Satanist and booted from the UK. It was right around then, sometime in 1994 or so, that I got a call from Timothy Leary asking if I would bring Genesis with me from San Francisco, where he first landed, to L.A. to stay with him. So we rode with his two young daughters and talked about everything from the history of occult British Parliament to the future of being human. We've been friends ever since and have had many, many adventures together. I played in Psychic TV for a couple of years and watched as Jen and his second wife, Lady J, took lots of ketamine and eventually began their pandrogeny experiment together, extending the cut-and-paste ethos to the human body and gender. Their idea was that gender needn't be binary. They're reaching not so much for trans as pan. Both of them would be both, at least together. And they underwent a series of painful surgeries on their faces and bodies, 
Tragically, Jackie died suddenly of stomach cancer, leaving Jen as just one half of the project. Over the coming years, Jen became a they, reflecting not just living as more than one gender, but living for more than one person. And just last month, they were diagnosed with leukemia, likely a kind that will respond to treatment, but forcing the cancellation of a tour and keeping them stuck in the apartment on oxygen. They've got no funds, so I launched a GoFundMe a couple of weeks ago, which has been doing well and is linked from our teamhuman.fm page. I visited with Jen last week and put microphones on both of us for our conversation. Stephen has done minimal editing to preserve the human pace of the interaction. It's around two hours in all, so feel free to just listen in bits and pieces over the holiday. We'll be back with our next new episode on January 10th. Should give people time to catch up on the 60-some-odd conversations already in the queue. If you hear hissing in the background, that's not your player. It's the oxygen machine running on and off through the conversation. Thanks for being on Team Human. And now, Genesis Briar Peorage. Remember what Jay used to say, accept all gifts. Yeah. And that's not easy. We still have a problem with that. You know, when people, like asking people or even just saying to people, you know, I'm really struggling right now because I have zero income because I couldn't go on tour. Right. And you, you feel weird, even though you know in reverse it wouldn't be an issue. You know, if you told me you were struggling, I would... It's just... harder to accept than to give. Yeah. And that's what the, all of these, you know, I, I would been promoting all of these, you know, shareable communities and all these great ideas. And the real problem people have is not letting someone else borrow their lawnmower or their whatever. It's accepting. And the reason why they're afraid to accept, I think, is partly out of, um, it's been so abused. And we also don't know what's, is, I don't know. I feel the like. Gifting. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a whole area of it that's been turned into a massive industry with different celebrations from Thanksgiving to Halloween to Christmas to Kwanzaa to... Valentine's know, Day and Mother's Day. Yeah, Father's Day, everything. Just endless excuses for gifting, but, but as an obligation. Right. Did you, what did you get for Easter, you know? What did you get for Thanksgiving? What did you get for Christmas? And so it becomes this whole complex of emotional confusion. Well, it's also when you turn gifting, when you institutionalize it, when you turn it into an obligation, you rob it of its power. You know, if everybody was gifting to each other all the time, yeah. how, do, <laughs> how well, do authorities maintain their control over people who are generous with each other? Well, yes. I mean, it, we, we, as you know, we've been thinking a lot, a lot about communities, not communes. Communes uh, are almost unworkable in this moment of our story, but communities, we still think, are an inevitable phase in the survival or not of our species in any viable form. And that requires this whole issue of Whose is what? So if you've got 10 people and two of them own houses, 
and say, yeah, we'll sell our houses and buy a big house. Who does the house belong to? If 10 people have committed their lives to being in it. And then you get these arguments. Well, I bought the house, uh, so I should get the biggest bedroom. And people have cars and you go, we only need two cars for 10 people. Why have we got eight cars? Let's sell, let's sell some. Oh, well, which ones do we sell? I don't want to sell mine. I like and who my gets the money car. if I and do? Where does, yeah, where does the, yeah, what if I want that car later? And people start thinking about what if it doesn't work? And of course it never works then. It's a bit like people who, who sort of approach a relationship and they're never 100% unconditional love where they absolutely become vulnerable because they're scared, what if it goes wrong and I get hurt? Right. I've been hurt before and I hate being hurt that way. So I'm gonna protect myself by not quite giving everything. I'm gonna keep this little little barrier up just there. Right, so you see a couple get together but their, their record collections are separate. Oh, yeah. As if, you know, <laughs> just in case, so we won't have to go through and figure out who's is who. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> And so there's, there's all the, these issues, then there's skills. You know, somebody might only have a broken car, but they're a brilliant welder and, and handy person, you know, and they can fix everything. So what's the value of that? They didn't put any money into the kitty, but without them, it doesn't run. So you've got all these dynamics of a society going on in a small space. We found people are far less malleable than they were in the 60s and 70s or even the 80s with topi where we still had topi houses and people shared and there was very little debate about whose was what you know maybe well, because we were paying for everything well, right and also <laughs> everyone going in was poor they yeah. had no possessions really yeah there wasn't really anything to argue over except the house which was ours right but people lived in it for free you know so but they didn't have a claim on it. No, no. But you, you just talk about it to people now and they want almost uh, a prenup in advance. They're not prepared to share. They think that somehow it's demeaning and giving power to someone else to share. That's what we found, that people are much more reluctant now. You know, that's my, what's yours is, is ours, and what's mine is mine. And you try and talk to students about the idea of a community, and they think it's a great idea until you talk about practicalities. And nobody wants to be the one who commits the most and gets the least materially.
So what holds it together? That's why we went on our road trip. You know, we went to the Radical Fairies, and... Where was that? That was in Tennessee, near Memphis, of all places. Um, and that's been there... Radical Fairies? Yeah, yeah. They've been there since 72. It was originally a group of six hippie couples who moved into this piece of land the building, the main building, was pre-Civil War, and still is. Uh, it's pretty basic. And apparently, which surprised me, when it got to the point that they were having children, they didn't want to raise them in a commune. They wanted them to go to a normal school. Mm -hmm. So they all gradually moved out, leaving one person there who happened to be bisexual. And the bisexual guy went out about in Memphis and found a boyfriend and decided that they would be the commune and it would be from then on a gay sanctuary for people who were having real struggles with the overriding culture mm -hmm. because of being gay whether they were abused as children or abused as adults or homeless or whatever it might be that was not working because of their their sexuality. This was a sanctuary they could go to and be safe. And it's been that ever since, since 78. It's still there. There's about eight people who live there all the time. And then twice a year they have a big radical fairy solstice parties. They have two a year. And those two parties are enough to finance it for the whole year. So they do two big parties for long weekends with lots of people camping, and they live their quiet life in the sanctuary and stay pretty much separate to, to, from the outside world. It's an escape. So what holds that together is the this, this sexuality and the need to escape, to not be plugged into the, the outside society at all. So it's a, it truly is a sanctuary. We also went to the farm, which is also in Tennessee, and was begun in ooh, the 60s and the beginning of the 70s by this guy, Steve Gaskell. Got a lot of books about them up there, I'll show you in a minute. But They were living in Haight-Ashbury in this big house, had a couple of houses that were communal. And then it started getting heavy in Haight-Ashbury and he'd started doing these Monday night talks which began with him and like 20 people, but became him and 200 people. And he became a kind of guru mm -hmm. figure. And at some point he said, this isn't working anymore being in the city, we have to get out of the city. So they got hold of 20 or, I always like to think 23, school buses. And they just all packed up everything and went off in these school buses in a convoy on a road trip across the United States, mm. going to different colleges, giving talks about community and communal living and dropping out of normal society, etc. Until he ended up in Tennessee and bought this land. And my first question to them was, how did you buy the fucking land? And there was a lot of humming and hawing. They didn't uh, want to say. Someone had a trust fund. Exactly. <laughs> how did you guess? 
couple of trust funds. Right. They bought a thousand acres and they decided to call it open land, meaning anyone who came could live on it, no questions asked, free land. Mm -hmm. Which worked for a while. You should probably borrow one of the books, it's interesting. Yeah. But Until someone starts building a foundation or... Well, what happened was that, of course, in the end there's about 1,200 people and only the original 100 are doing anything and everybody else is just freeloading. And coming and why don't why, where's our food, where's our soup? You know, we, where where do we put our tent? And and where you know, where's this? Where's and suddenly they're all working nonstop for all these people who do nothing. Which of course builds friction. And in the end, there was a coup. Steve Gaskell was away on a talking tour, trying to <laughs> to get more people to do the same thing. And they all went, no way, this is not working. We're, we're going to destroy what we've got. So they just ousted him as the leader and turned it into, um, there's a special word for it, a trust, some kind of a trust, yeah. a special trust, so that the main core all owned it. And it was up to votes and decisions by right. committee what, what happened. And since then, they've acquired another 2,000 acres. So they now have 3,000 acres, of which 2,000, they just leave it alone to just be nat natural. That's part of one of their things. Um, they also started the spiritual midwifery idea of natural birth again, and are very famous for having done that. And that's still one of their main activities, is midwives. But interestingly, once they got rid of the guru, how does it hold itself together? And still exists now, because it does. So we went there, and it was basically a gated community for rich old hippies. The ones that are still living there, most of them went away and came back later when they retired and then built these beautiful five-bedroom, three-bathroom houses in the trees. And they potter around in their cars, and they hardly even see each other. They just live on this beautiful piece of land. All the land that was farmed at the beginning is just fallow. And well, they get to live the dream, but not, not the... <laughs> without the, the reality. Yeah. yeah. And so we said, how do you finance it all? And this one, I love this one. One of the original hippies invented a handheld Geiger counter, which they got a contract with the Pentagon to supply the military with handheld Geiger counters that continues to this day. So somewhere there's a factory churning out these Geiger counters for the army and everyone. And who knows what the conditions are or not like in that factory, we don't know, but. Right. It all seemed very highly it's ironic. It's gone a long way since, right, since Abby Hoffman was going to levitate the uh, Pentagon. It's now let's gone just a long way since let's just Steve supply them. <laughs> thought about free land as well. Yeah. yeah. So we stayed there two or three nights. Um, they have an ecology center, which we went to visit. Because we were saying, so where's all the, where is everyone, you know? Well, here and there, it was, we gradually realized that it was, it was really a gated community. 
and they, but there are some, you know, they're, they're at the ecology centre, well, that's where the young ones go. We don't really like them. We're like, why? So we went there and it was the last bit of the original place. It was, I'll show you the pictures actually. It's so ironic. All the buses are there around the ecology centre. Oh, the original buses from the... Yeah. And they're all rotting like the dream. It was so symbolic, it was ridiculous. It was, it was melancholy, but kind of inevitable, I guess. Level, though it's a it's a microcosm for what happens to all of these. Yeah, it's what happened to the '60s. I know when uh, I remember Jerry Garcia was doing a uh, an interview shortly before he died, where he was talking about how the '60s happened in over a period of two weeks <laughs> in 1968 <laughs> it was the '60s. But they did these parties, these terrific, beautiful acid test parties in yeah. barns, and some guys got wind of the fact that there were some stoned girls so they started showing up at acid tests wait for girls to be tripping and then try to get sex with them you know and so and that that he blamed that basically for that's what killed the 60s or you could look at the internet here we had this great experiment of you know shared psychic space and the new human and the guy well, that comes from the whole earth cataloged idea that yeah. was a precursor wasn't it, in a way yeah well certainly to the peopled internet, but then uh, uh, John Barlow writes the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace and says, government, get away, we can do this ourselves, and he cleared, this, cleared the land for corporations to come in, and now we've got anything but, but Well, you remember what, what we told you about when Timothy, Timothy Leary organized that dinner for me to, to explain how to privatize the internet. Did I not no. tell you that story? Um, I, Tim rang me up one weekend and said, come down this weekend. And I was like, I don't know. You know, it's a long way, blah, blah, blah. Oh, no, come down. You're, it'll be worth your while because there's these people coming and they want to talk to you. And I said, why? Said, oh, they want to talk to you about, you know, computers and what's happening with technology. And, and I was like, uh, I don't know if I want to be bothered. So oh, you're going to get paid. And so my ears pricked oh. up, you know, okay. He said, you know, you get $1,500. I was like, okay, yeah. I'll come. So off we go, and we get there, and the, the day rolls round. I think it was a Saturday. And these creepy people turn up. And it turned out that, according to them, one day's profit of Bill Gates' shares at that moment in time was their budget. And it turned out to be something like $8 million. So they got this budget, and their, their, their task was how to privatize what would become the internet, and how to police it. And I said, to, I took Timothy to the side, and I said, Tim, why on earth would I want to help them do that? You know, I thought we were all fighting to keep it a free zone. Uh -huh. He said, oh, well, it won't happen. I was like... Tim, I don't know what I don't know about this. I'm really not sure that I want to talk to these people. They just, oh, don't worry. It would just just make something up, you know. It's like, uh. 
And so it came to after dinner and suddenly he says, and Genesis is going to now regale you with a prophecy of what's going to happen. I was like, what? I don't remember saying I was going to do that, Tim. <laughs> and so I just sort of went, I really don't think I've got much to say. And, and they all looked at me like, we came all this way and you're not going to fucking talk to us. They said, well, what about the hardware? What's going to happen with hardware? I said, oh, that's easy. It'll get smaller and smaller and get more and more functions. That's what always happens. You have to look at a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder, became a Ewer, which became a Walkman, which became a tiny right. little dictaphone. You know, that's what always happens. And of course, that was spot on, but that wasn't hard to figure out. And then they wanted to know, how could they make it commercially viable? Which was just so alien to my thinking mm -hmm. that I, I said, I don't know. I really don't know. But if I did, I wouldn't tell you. And it kind of wound down into an argument with Tim about why they, why, you know, why he dragged them there to, to talk to me, and I wasn't talking. say it really hadn't crossed my mind how effectively they would do it. It, it really I, hadn't. No, I was I was shocked. I remember the first time I saw the the uh, model. It was who was it? It was um, uh, Jonathan uh, Leslie Rossman, the book publicist's husband. Uh, he started this company, Organic Online, and uh, Matthew Nelson, Matthew and Jonathan Nelson. They um, and they showed these things, well, we'll have like, you'll have different, like your albums will be on a page on the web and you can click on the album, find out what's in it, and then click on this button to buy it. And they'll send you the record or eventually it'll be an electronic music file. So they got it all worked out. When and was that? I was so shocked. That was, uh, you know, 95, 96. That's really they were, And no one believed them. They were going from place to place to place. And eventually um, AT&T said, yeah, that actually looks like that could work, but even even those of us who thought maybe it would happen didn't think it would take over the whole net. So there'll be this net and use net and conversations and places, and then maybe if you can go off and to buy the store. occasional things. Yeah, it's it's totally taken over. Yeah, well, even the buying and selling of things didn't make enough money to justify all of the investment in the net. So now they buy and sell us. <laughs> you know, it's buying and selling human data in order to feed it to machines. Uh, who then learn how to replicate what we do, so then we're not needed anymore, which has been the object of the game from the beginning. Oh, yeah. Well, that, that's when you get down to human beings as a, as a redundant resource, which is what's really going on. And also, with, with the whole internet uh, selfie narcissism trip, they're training people to stay inside because it's getting so toxic outside. You mean environmentally? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
and not just weather and, and pesticides. Every, I mean, in this room we're sitting in right now, with the right hardware, we can listen, we can pick up every phone call in the world and every military satellite in the world and every TV show and every radio show. All of that's in this room in Potentia and we have no idea what that does to us, all that electronic jangling around us constantly, what it might do to the cells, what it might do to the brain. What is I know, we used to worry when it was just television and radio signals. Yeah. We were thinking, oh, is that doing things? And people got all, got into seances mm -hmm. and wavelengths and channeling, I think was all part of uh, living in that electronic media environment. But, but now digital. people don't question it. No. They just want the new toy. No, and then they wonder why are you know kids having attention deficit disorder and autism and all these things and hive collapse and uh, yeah, we we we've just taken away any kind of critical analysis of the effects, cause and effect, and it's it's destructive on a, a huge level. But the agenda of those who have power has to be that we as a resource are actually a nuisance. We're, we're of no great value anymore. They don't need workers, they don't need people to go down to the coal mines. No, they don't. And so they don't need us. When, I mean, when, it, when it was the, the Middle Ages and agriculture started to really become viable, they needed a relatively strong, very cheap labor force to do all the grunt work. So they had serfs. Mm -hmm. who were indentured, you know, they lived in the owner's buildings and they right. worked for nothing. The serfs though, I mean, they worked, but they worked for the vassals who then worked for the, uh, worked for the kings. And who are obliged, if the king has an argument with another king, to fight for them. Right. They actually have to go fight. And then you get the Industrial Revolution where they needed people a little more educated, a little more healthy, and also living closer together near the factories and they still need that labor force so there's there's a certain socialism occurs especially in britain with the industrial revolution which has now become a liability they don't want trade unions they don't want people educated right uh, on a mass scale they don't want any of that it's, it's just uh it's obvious to me that the reason they're trying to close down health insurance and everything else is because they don't need that labor force they don't need a, a reasonably healthy, ongoing labor force. It's, it's a liability, economically. Right, and their vision cost. of everything, it's just... Well, if every corporation, you know, for first, they don't want to hire people anyway. They, they, whenever you talk to, you know, venture capitalists about your business, if there's any humans involved, they say, oh, well, then it can't scale. It can only scale if it's completely automated. And you know that you have three people doing programming. Yeah, they want AI and they want clones they, and they, right. They, they don't want to have to, you know, hire five hundred people in India to answer phone calls. Even that is uh, is yeah. too much. So that's what's happening right now. Is they're looking at ways to erase the redundant population of the planet. Obviously. Right. It's economics. And you know, we've been saying for well over 10 years, more like 20 at this point, that totalitarian capitalism would be the next established system. And that was just observing China, who had the great advantage of right. a slave economy. 
Yeah, if you didn't agree, you got killed. <laughs> but made to work till you dropped. You know, so everyone's taken note that, that they're successful and ruthless. And it appeals to the mindset of how to make a profit. The idea that there's a limited, finite amount of Earth just doesn't compute with them. Right. But that could, you could make the same argument for population reduction, that Club of Rome, limited resources, you know, they, they, the same people who want to get rid of us because we're a liability could use the uh, environmental argument and say, oh, we've got to get the population down to three billion again, or. Yeah, but they're not doing that because they're, they're not that, what's the word, not that inspired or that. Well, they can't admit. They're not that em empathic. based on the idea of growth and growth actually goes against the laws of nature in the end right and we're reaching the point where we're going against the laws of nature in terms of growth well because things nature don't grow forever a forest no. or coral reef no. or anything reaches full grown and then becomes more circulatory or it dies yeah. yeah so the crunch is coming Originally, they were, they were definitely thinking about trying to get to Mars. But now they're thinking about just dumping us <laughs> with revolution, with plague, with war, with everything and anything. Right. Well, something will happen without them. They don't have to do anything. No. You know, with... Except have their bunkers ready. Right. Except have their bunkers ready. And that's... Uh, I went to... Um, I don't know if I mentioned this on the show, I really should. Um, I went to uh, uh, Las Vegas to do a consult of some kind with these billionaire people. And we sat around a table and it got to questions like, how do I maintain my security force after the apocalypse if money's not worth anything? Well, there's an interesting scenario to be, so he, <laughs> Because he's got the land in New Zealand, you know, and he's got the bunkers, and he's got the 50 people with the machine guns who are supposed to protect him, but then what's he going to pay them with? Sex, drugs, <laughs> food. Food, right, but they could just take the food. That is true. That's the great risk, of course. And, you, you know, the odds are high that you would end up with lots of little demigods, gangs. Right. You're not going to be able to, I mean, you're not going to... They're if not you're going to want to be bossed around by a fucking Trump. Exactly. Or some rich go, little digital guy. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, we'll kill you. Yeah, it's, it's warlord time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's... A, so it, what's happening then? Come on, you tell me what you think's going on. I'm, I'm concerned that what's going on is uh, uh, a real... Uh, uh, I don't want to call it a collapse of civilization, but the the reversal of humans and institutions and systems 
that all the things that we set up to help us or to e express who we are, are are doing the opposite. So even something as simple as education, you know, we started schools, public schools, as a way to give something back to all the coal workers, mm. you know, so they'd be able to, at least when they're not in the caves, breathing in that black crap, at least they could sit and read a Dostoevsky novel and understand it. And their children might work in the office instead. Right. And now education is not that gift back to the worker. Now education is training for the worker. Now the principals of the schools and the presidents of the colleges talk to corporations. What should we teach this, the students so that they can be a better worker for you? So it's become an extension of the market rather than uh, a compensation for being a laborer. And I feel like everything's reversed like that. The internet reversed from this great crazy home for the counterculture to the 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 supermarket in the sky and the tool of surveillance and the thing that's actually trying to wipe out any nook or cranny or strange space. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I'm in some databases. Oh. We, but the thing is, it, and you too, of course. Everyone, though, not, yeah. it's not even you. Don't have to be dangerous. You just because being a thinking human, having autonomy, having any unpredictability. It's funny. Way back when, in the very is beginning, is that why we, we we still think that the cut up is such a powerful tool? Yeah. And if you remember, I don't know, in uh, 1995 or 96, we were talking about the very beginnings of surveillance uh, technology. And you said, oh, Douglas, uh, uh, anomalous behavior is the best form of resistance. In other words, just do strange things. Throw random things into your, into your life. Ran just go turn left when you would have turned right. right. And it will confuse, you know, the people who are trying to... And the algorithms, too. Right. Confuse those algorithms. Although I guess the algorithms figure that out. Oh, you're one of those anomalous people. Let's put him <laughs> in that category. Yeah. Those algorithms. We would need everybody going random. Well, yeah. There's a great, we had a guest on the, the, the show early on, a guy named uh, Mushan, and he did a, uh, an app called, oh, I forgot. It was, an ad, it was an ad blocking app. But instead of just blocking the ads, you know, when you go on the web and they throw those things, instead of just blocking the ads, it hid all the ads from you, but it, in the background it clicked on everything. Just to create this um, uh, noise for the uh, So it overloaded everything. <laughs> just click, 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 click. Wow. It clicked at everything. To be, so you just start looking like this person who's clicking on everything and they can't tell anything. That's uh, nice. It was called ad nauseum. <laughs> of course. What happened to it? It's still around. It was more of a, a demonstration, I think. But it's fun, though. If you turn all the ads off, if you turn all the trackers off, if you stop with your uh, cookies and things, things stop working. You know, you can't you you can't get the net if they don't let let them watch you. Really? There's no. I mean, you can use certain, you know. And we don't bother being paranoid because there's no point, you know, about that. What are they going to do? Where are they going to take you? What are they? I'm not paranoid about someone coming after me. I'm more paranoid about the ability of the algorithms to entrain me. To, I don't like knowing that what shows up for me is being designed to change my behavior or stimulate 
my fears, which is what they're looking for. What's I just erase every ad that comes up. I must be really frustrating for them because I'm just not You still interested. do Google searches. You still click on things. Very rarely. Mm. Very, very rarely. I basically still use the computer as a, a clever typewriter. Yeah. Well, and that's the only way I feel good after I've used it. But when you reach, and I mean, on the one hand, no. that extended brain and all that data is so empowering. But on the other hand, it's so uh, decentering. You know, it's... it's uh... It really disconnects. It doesn't connect at all. People are getting more disconnected all the time. sound nostalgic though. You know that in the old days you wanted to find something out, you'd walk to the library, you'd open the reader's guide to periodical literature or the card catalog and find the subject, then go to the shelf and then these are the books and this is the one I looked up but maybe this one has a little bit more to do with it and then you look and that might take two days until you've gotten that piece of, as that, the piece of information that you would get Wikipedia or a click or something's going to throw it. I mean, Wikipedia, you can't. It's hard to talk against that as a, as a commons, which it really is. You know, Wikipedia is, is, is a bit different. The, really, the net. Could you imagine if the net was just, you know, Wikipedia, archive.org, email. What's archive.org? It's uh, a Brewster Kale set it up. It's just these giant archives of uh, movies and uh, uh, books and... Uh, it's like the Gutenberg project that has all the uh, out of all books that are out of copyright. They make scans of them and put them in these giant archives. And then what? Well, then they're accessible. Until there's no electricity. Right. Then it's gone. Which is why I keep these. This is my my Gutenberg project. Yes. I I collect books of the '60s and the '70s that I know won't be reprinted. Most of them but have information about communities and, and alternative ways of thinking outside the box as a small service to the future. And you throw out books though too, don't you? Make or books, you yeah. yeah. The newest one is the Brian Geisen book. It's finally coming out. Back in the 80s when I used to go see Brian in Paris, originally I would record him on a Walkman. Mm. Then later on, I would hire a portable video camera, which was massive. It's almost like taking this thing. And would record him on video. Well, Scotland Yard took all the videos, sadly, of Brian telling all these amazing stories about Shizuka and the Rolling Stones and the evolution of paper and mm. all this. All gone. And then I had a box with all the cassette tapes in. And some of the interviews transcribed and then Andrew McKenzie from the Hafler trio stole the box the whole lot and vanished around the time of Scotland Yard so I couldn't do anything you know he's, he's an opportunist thing mm. 
Right. And for those who don't know, Scotland Yard was when. Uh, so uh, was was when uh, you made the video basically of. Uh, and I think this was what they went nuts about, right? You, you made oh, a video yeah. of the, uh, uh, that made it look like... The ritual a, cuttings, yeah. Right, ritual cutting or ritualized abortion. There was no abortion. No, there yeah. wasn't, but it looked like it. To them, it did. To them. And uh, <laughs> then they pretty much kicked but, you out of the country. Yeah, but, but the, the box vanished. And then about four years ago, Carl Abrahamson in Sweden bumped into Andrew McKenzie in Slovenia or somewhere, who had a big moment of guilt and gave it all back. And so it's now coming out next spring as a finished book. As transcripts? Yeah, transcripts of the interviews, edited interviews, and about seven articles that I've written about Brian and William. It's called His Name Was Master. Mm. And it's... I like it. And in, in revisiting all the material... It's you... like being with him again. Yeah. It's really cute. It's not deep necessarily, but that's kind of... I find that appealing. He's not trying to be intellectual. It's just people hanging out, doing what we're doing, with no agenda except to just think and talk and, and stimulate each other. And I think that's a good thing to make available right now. You know, one-on-one, -on -one, people talking to each other, not through a fucking phone. Right. I mean, how many times do you make phone calls now? We don't. Well, that's because the phones don't work like they used to. Yeah. When we were kids, the telephone was analog. Mm. And it sounded more like, uh, even though it was low, uh, uh, I guess, it had, a, it had a narrow range, but it was analog and it... it you felt connected to the person on the other side. You could have long, romantic calls with your girlfriend or boyfriend. You'd sit curled up with the receiver, and you can't. I can't imagine doing that with a cell phone now, because it's like what? Because you know, it's not even the voice. It's some MP3 type, you know, algorithm. Yeah, it's an approximation. Right, because they want you to get the information, but not. The essence. Yeah. And that's the thing. That's what I feel like we're living in. We're living in an, in an extraordinarily utilitarian environment where we get the thing, but there's nothing in it. So it's like, here's your vitamins. It's like, yeah, but there's no like chi or prana in the food. And the same with the conversation. You have the conversation on the digital phone, and, but there's, I'm missing something. Or you have a Skype call and you see the person, but you don't really establish rapport. And then you tend psychologically, you don't blame it on the technology, you blame it on the other person. You don't, uh, psychically, it's like, well, wait, he wasn't really there. Of course he wasn't there. He's on a fucking Skype call. He's not there. So you can't expect to get that organismic charge that We've you get from being We've started making people. phone calls again. Mm. And it's really hard to remember. We've been texting so long that we, we just text and we think, oh shit, I could have phoned. And whenever we phone, we have a real conversation compared to, I mean, you're saying that, I, I still find it much preferable to talk to somebody because oh, yeah. you get much more well-rounded information. It's not all trimmed into little bursts. You do, you get way more, but there's, there's latency now. There's different subtle cues that something's not quite right. And I think you need to 
we need to remember that, that we're not getting all of the, not all the touch points, not all the receptors are being, are being filled. And I mean, yes, we, so we call infrequently, but we see each other way, way less than we did. We see strangers yeah. on the street, but when do I see anybody? I know. I mean, years can go by. I just saw, we're just talking about Peskovitz because I just saw him for the first time and I realized we hadn't seen each other live in three or four years. What is that? Well, I mean, how often do we see each other? Yeah. And I still think of you as a close friend. But there's this distance, and I'm sure it's, it's deliberate. We're being trained. We are. By well, the because technology. we're all so fucking busy, you know, trying to just keep myself going and answer every email. And, and that's why I'm, I'm, I'm making a radical change yeah. on finishing this book. This is really the last one, maybe ever, but certainly for a long, long time. You know, I've been, this is 20 books, I've had the stage. And if I'm a privileged white male, it's time to use whatever I have to create space for others. You know, and that should be just, if not more satisfying. So I want to just leave all that and just start doing live theater again. Oh, really? Yeah. Interact with people in a real... I miss people. You know, even, you know, however painful it was, even being in the van with... Uh, Oh yeah, with 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 the, the, the PTV3. I mean, and those are long, horrible trips. On a certain level, you're sitting in that thing, and everybody's so tired and smelly and getting colds. And but at least you're with other people. You're part of a merry band. You're oh yeah, I still get. I still like to tour. There's no substitute, and we get bigger audiences than ever. Mm. Now, yeah. This was tragic to lose this tour. Yeah, because this was at a different. It was popped up to a different level again. What I did want to ask you, though, is that the, you were talking before a, a bit about you know industrialized society and the impact of all these things on us and these hidden waves and all. I mean, your response to that in the 80s was to invent industrial music. That was the 70s. 70s. That was the 70s. 75. Oh, I guess so. Yeah. 75. Yeah, we're all older than we look. Yeah. So. 80s was Topi and, and, right. and Psychic TV. So in the 70s, you invent industrial music as a way of... Uh, it felt empowering. So we're living in a world with all these industrial noises. Now we're going to take those noises, recombine them, and blast them out. And, and express what it's like to live in a, de a decaying industrial society. You know, because the railways were uh, being steam, and they were just chopping all the steam engines up for scrap. 
All the cotton mills were closing in Manchester because they were outsourcing to India. And so, you know, it was really vivid for me. You know, we, were, we were in that decaying society. It was very clear. And yet there was no um, equivalent aesthetic to go with that experience. You know, rhythm and blues based on slave music wasn't wasn't part of my experience. So I was like, well, I want to make a music that re relates to me. You know, what I'm seeing and feeling and, and this alienation. And where is it? You know, what's happening? So the empire is disintegrating around us, you know, which is what was going on. But then it ends up being an empowering thing to do it, though. It did, for a while. A bit like the 60s, it wasn't very long. <laughs> and then it became an accessory. People accessorized with it. If I yell and make a lot of noise and talk about serial killers, I'm industrial. Yeah. And it, it lost its potency. Because it became a fashion. It became a fashion accessory, a formula. And, and the people who do that make a whole lot more money on it. Oh, but to the, to the other question, though. Yeah. So, industrial did that. What, what do you see as, the, as your equivalent response to digital? You know, oh. Well, we, 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 we proposed and we still think it's, it's, it's working, which is a return to the limited edition and the concrete object and the specialist book, the specialist item, a return to the tactile, to the, the analog and communities, small communities, not communes, but say built on the structure of a village. So you have one main building with resources and enough space to have meetings of everyone, workshops, computer room, library, etc. And then you have individual spaces like satellites around it on the land. So everyone has their own private space too. And then anyone who has to go away for whatever project knows their animals or whoever will be taken care of while they're gone. So it's a sort of mutually supportive autonomy. And do you think you'll get to live in one of these? Are you well, going to make one? We have about 600,000 coming from England, somebody sold their house as a donation. Really? Yeah. To the group or to, to...? To the idea. But whether they'll come through when it gets to right. the day, who knows. But. And if they do, you'll go upstate or find land somewhere and...? Oh, we're already looking. Yeah. That would be my... My legacy would be to try and leave behind a think tank an autonomous small think tank. It has its weakness, which is it's easily wiped out. 
but that's true of anything, you know. That's why you need lots of small ones here, there, and everywhere, right. networking. It might be that it's not even that formal. It could be that there's just a sequence of buildings in different countries, in different places, but you all have the key. Mm. You know, so if we decide we want to be in Nepal and write a book for six months, we know there's a building there we can go to and live in for six months. But it might not be our building. But then whoever's living in that one might want to be in New York for six months and so it's on. It's like a New York Health Club membership. Kind you of. You use your card and go into any uh, Yeah, any kind facility. of. A little bit. And right, but it's a network. It's a, a network, yeah. yeah. An ad hoc network with a certain autonomy. Um, hopefully with good skills and preserving information that's not digital, you know, because it's so fragile. You lose your phone, you've lost everything, you know. The iCloud is switched off, you've lost everything. Right, someone... You know, EMP goes yeah. off, you're fucked. You know, it is interesting how much we've put in there. I mean, on a certain level, I mean, it's awful to say it. On a certain, some part of me deviously wants some data explosion to happen. You know, the, the Mr. Robot Fight Club, <laughs> you know, drive for just. I mean, I, we, we couldn't because there's people who would die. There's people who are hooked up to things, you know. Airplanes they're, they're, that would drop from the sky. Yeah, I mean, so you can't actually want it. But the the... The internet was originally, when we were playing with it in the late 80s, early 90s, it was a safe haven for the counterculture. Yeah. And now everything has gone on there, all the bad. I feel like, almost like, well, let them have it and then we can reclaim the real world. Exactly. Exactly. Which is why, you know, Carl Abrahamson is, is now a book publisher. Uh, the people who did Topia in Northampton are a record label. Ryan, who was doing my archive, is a record label and is doing a documentary on Topi. You saw it as a precursor to the internet in a way. Mm -hmm. And that's what they're fascinated with. They're all in their 20s and they're astounded at how much we got done. Like limited edition books and records and tapes and pamphlets and events and films. And yep, it's hard to remember that for a 20-something, the Topi period is as long ago as like, World War II was to us. Yeah. You know, it's like another black and, and white It's all about universe. stuff that was tactile, actually, you know, material. Right. And they're, they're loving it. They've been going to London to the Tate and going through the archives and scanning stuff. And every time they come back, they go, we can't believe how much got done. How did you do all that? I said, because we all just did it. We didn't sort of go, oh, but if I do this, will you get the credit? Right. So that happened a little bit, but most of the time I hear it didn't. so much on projects. People start talking about all the contracts and stipulations, and it's... it's you know, we, we just wanted to get it to happen. Yeah. You know, I could ring up Derek Jarman and everyone and say, hey, we're doing a rave and we'd like films everywhere. Would you do it? Yeah. And think about how much harder it was to do then, too, because yeah, we didn't just have video projectors and... Uh, but we'd have John Mabry and Kareth Wynne Evans and Derek Jarman and all these people projecting it all over the building just because they wanted to do it. 
and now it's 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 all negotiation. So I think that that's that's where the real energy will lie is in a new interpretation of collaborating again. You know, they've they've been affected by it already. You're, I mean, Susanna has just started to read the Psychic Bible. Mm. Um, I sign more Psychic Bibles than records now at, com at gigs. That to me is really significant. And you know, it's been tra it's been translated into Russian as well mm. by fans and published. Have you seen that? Did yeah, yeah, you, you yeah, showed me that. that. Yeah. I mean, the beauty of it is that the entire psychic book, I mean, you could read it all for free online. Yeah, but if you people want, want the book. They do want the book. Well, because they understand it more as a, almost a way to cast a certain kind of spell. And so, you know, that they did a Kickstarter and they got $65,000 to get started on a documentary. So it's, it's still feeding activity in a positive way all these years later it's almost got another life and it's they say it's very relevant it's as if this is another crisis moment in society and it makes a lot of sense to them mm -hmm. thing that, that makes sense now, another compass for people in these very disoriented times, was the, uh, you wrote a bunch of poems on this, so, and essays on the, the pleasure principle. Yeah. You know, that if, if people became capable of understanding what's pleasurable and what's not, then they're going to want sensory experience. They don't want to sit at a computer screen or curled over on this little device. They want Actual touch. Touch and contact and yeah. spaces and they start to... Pleasure you know, is a weapon, as we is, say. It is, though. It is a weapon because at least it ties you back to your human drives. It's, uh, it's really interesting for me to watch the Topi virus reactivate the way it is and, and people discussing whether or not they can make it work again in some form, whether there's a form it could take now. No, and I'm interestingly, they're saying maybe they should only write letters. This, this brilliant thought that came up was, let's not use the internet, let's write letters to everyone. And that means they have to write them back. And that's a commitment they're not used to, therefore that's going to actually make them think differently about what they put in the letter and how much effort it takes. Usually when I get a letter from a reader as opposed to an email, sadly so far, it's usually a real a diatribe, yeah. Yeah, person, you know, and there's all these xeroxes of all the evidence of the, you know, of this or that or the rays or the the particles coming out of the airplanes and what is that one about the chemtrails? They think that they're putting stuff in jet fuel that is putting something in the atmosphere that then allows them to control the weather or these little nanoparticles or... I know, well, people would rather there be 
So they, they would rather believe in nothing. the Wizard of Oz than... Even a bad Wizard of Oz, then nothing, then this is just happening, then we're just... Oh, that we're responsible. Yeah. If it's conspiracy, then it could be stopped by someone. But you're not scared, are you? Of what? The end of the world? No. It's going to end anyway for me. Well, and you and everyone else. It ends, you know, you die. Right. So the world ends, or the, the particular one that you inhabit ends, and it always has. It's a loop. But if the big one ends, if they, I mean, you've got a child, a grandchild. Hey, they chose to be there. I mean, I, I certainly, if, if I was a parent now, our lead guitarist Jeff and his wife are having a baby in a, the next two weeks. And another friend of mine is having a baby in the next two weeks. And I just think, you know, the, the odds are high. They're both having daughters. The odds are very high that those daughters will end up sex slaves of a gang when it collapses. You don't think about that? I do. I mean, not in those terms, but oh, that, the that, equivalent. You know, who's going to be the most prepared to survive when it collapses? Gangs. You know, motorcycle clubs and, and gangs. And what are they but ruthless and violent and when they have no, no threat of any kind of punishment for what they do, they get more extreme. And what's the greatest weapon of the male gang member over anyone else is rape. So the odds are very high that the future holds rape from a massive number of people. I mean, they, they have a great chance of becoming quite powerful because they already have networks. They already have, they're already armed. They're already mobile and ruthless. So, you know, they've got the best chance of, of taking over certain areas. And it will become warlords. And what do warlords always do? Yeah. Have sex slaves, so. And you think that's going to happen, or you think that's just one possible scenario? I think it's the most likely for a period of time. I mean, where's the altruism anymore? You know, where, where are these little enclaves going to be where they remember how to make electricity and fix things? Well, they don't let us fix things anymore. So, you know, the technologies we have now are meant to be... So, we're, so exactly. So we're we're going to be very primitive for a long period of time. Right. If we could roll back to the sort of the the, the best of the industrial age and transistor radios and yeah. parts and uh, crystals. Where you could still fix things. Yeah. At home. Automobiles. Remember they points and plugs. My and uncle Acer built his own TV from a kit. The screen was only about this yeah. big. And it was a kind of weird green, but he built it. And I had a crystal radio. Yeah, I did too. That was pretty primitive technology. It was a crystal. Yeah. <laughs> An actual crystal. How the hell it worked, I've never figured out. But yeah, I think the odds are high that it's going to collapse. And the only way that they can avoid that is pre-planned warlords 
you know, corporations like Google right. or whoever, Bill Gates, they've already got their heraldic symbols to put on their shields. People pay to wear the heraldic symbols. It's incredible. You mean like a Google shirt or something? Yeah, or uh, a Nike sh shoe, whatever. Right. Those are basically, those brand symbols, those logos, are the same as the ones for aristocrats in the Middle Ages on their shields and pennants when they went to war. And it wouldn't take much to switch it across to being the symbol of a private army. Well, I mean, if the warlords of the 21st, 22nd century were, you know, the equivalent of Sergey Brin and Elon Musk and, oh, yeah. uh, and those guys, um, well, I don't like warlords. They're not as bad as a Mugabe or something. Exactly. The question would be, <clears throat> would Elon Musk and his enclave be strong enough to survive a Mugabe or a Trump, you know? They're going to have lots of little automated gadgets. cars to chase down. <laughs> No, I'd love to see that. That's that. the war. Well, it's the war of the clones against the war of the, uh, the droids, yeah? Yeah. The gadgets versus the, the gangs. Be interesting to see. Well, and then that's part of where the, the, the folks who do want to control society, who come up with these great demos of tiny, uh, tiny drones attacking people and doing facial recognition, I mean, they do want to scare us into thinking that they will be able to control us even, even when. I mean, it's an interesting conundrum we're in, because on the one hand, we hate them because they're trying to control us and surveil us and predict us, and on the other hand, they might be our last best hope for survival in the <laughs> chaotic World War IV. As long as we uh, surrender our autonomy. Right. And that's the big one, isn't it? I know for a fact that I'm just not capable. Of surrendering your autonomy. Too late for me. Fuck them. Well, they'll let you have your own little autonomy. They might. They'll let, let Shulgin have his little autonomy, didn't they? Alexander. Well, he was going to, um, going to Bohemia Grove. I he know, was... yeah. He was well-connected. God. When I found out he was a member of Bohemian Grove, I understood a lot more. Huh. Can't believe that was the first place we rented somewhere, right opposite Bohemian Grove in Monterio. Well, there's probably some power vectors. It must have drawn us without us knowing. Yeah. They're doing a lot. And of then we moved to Casadero, and at the end of the street was a fucking Tibetan Buddhist monastery. But you don't do a spiritual practice as such, do you? Or do you? Uh, not anything formal, but I think spiritually. Yeah. And I behave spiritually more than ever. Um, I mean, when you got this uh, diagnosis, did you draw sigils and things to... No, but a lot of people did. Yeah. A lot of people did. The first night when I said that I was diagnosed, I got over 1,400 messages. And that was something that was really positive, was they were all saying, I'm sending you prayers and love and light and, 
And I said, you know, we've been thinking, is there a way to activate a network that's like Topi? Is there a place for something like that right now? And it turns out there is one. It's already in place. And that was the evidence of it, was that it activated itself when there was a crisis for a figurehead, you know, a symbolic figure that for all those people meant something, something of value to their life, something that's enriched them in some way. And they were prepared to be uncool and say, I, I love you, Jen, you know, which is not done anymore. Hipsters right. don't say that because it's giving a power away to someone. So that was really encouraging. Mm. That's been the most positive thing of all, is how people have responded to it in, in a really vulnerable, open-hearted way. This is the strangest part of all. This is the strangest part of all. The chosen one that chose me to. The chosen one whose name was you. And now my days are filled with us. The reward of your paradise. I'm supposed to give a talk in Mexico City, though in December. They're flying me down first class. They've got an oxygen machine for me. They have to, because the problem with Mexico City, I, know, I we went were, there. We were there a, uh, It's like 6,000 feet. I was really, that's the yeah. first time I had to have oxygen, was there. You know, I was in the hotel, I said, I can't breathe. I didn't realize it was because I was getting sick. But, right. but even so, I needed oxygen. So. No, I practically needed oxygen there. I took a, a special pill. I took a mountain climber pill. Otherwise, I get these migraines oh, yeah. and these. And it worked? Yeah. Huh. There's a mountain climber's pill that puts more um, red blood cells or something. Oh, that sounds like what I should get. Yeah, well, I don't know. I'm already <laughs> on things. I yeah. can't mix them up. <laughs> I'm sure they know about it. Yeah. Might be the same one for all I Yeah. Know. So then what? You're hoping. That uh, if these pills work. If they can find a balance between these two pills. Yeah. Then that should be it for a while. And then you take it for a while and then eventually you're cured and stop taking either one, right? Or I just take those forever like I do my stay alive pills. And, right. Which is no big deal to me. I'll happily take two pills a day to oh, stay yeah. around a bit longer. And then you think you would go back on tour in the spring? That's the plan. Not long tours. Right. And, I mean, we've got, I'm going to Australia in January. Because. You're doing such a. This is me resting. It's like Derek Jarman said. He said, Jen, when they find out that you're ill, they start to throw money and, and opportunities at you. You know, because when he was announced he had AIDS. Right. He got money for his films. And he and Brian both said the same thing, Geisen, you know. When they think you're getting old and you're not going to last much longer, they start to be nice. Well, then there's a scarcity to you. Yeah. There's a limited amount. And they should have so realized... So they'll start, manip you know, start maneuvering to get access, you know. 
It's like a market phenomenon. Yeah. I've already had people who will remain nameless talk about wanting to set up foundations with them in charge to try and control my work. I'm like, why would I want to do that? <laughs> oh, let caress control your work. That's what I said. Yeah. And she's a friggin' doctor, you know, she... No, the girls have to be involved. Yeah. I mean, there's no question. <laughs> but I was just thinking, wow, people are starting to think about what to do when I'm not here. Mm. Thanks a lot. I know. <laughs> I remember when uh, Timothy Leary, when he was actually dying, uh, Yoko Ono came to visit. And she said, oh, Timothy, you know, she sat on the bed. She goes, you were so great. And he's like, what, were? You're talking about me in the past tense already? You know, I'm still here. Yeah, well. I mean, I do know the feeling of having lived more than I'm going to live. I do feel, you know, that I'm over the, I'm over the hump in that way. Most likely, given the, you know, the current levels of technology. But uh, there's a, for me, there's a relief in it. I feel like, okay, I've, not that I'm just going to uh, retire now, but I don't feel like I have anything to prove to anyone. I have nothing yeah. to attain. I just want to uh, kind of have fun and tweak culture and create change. And change, that's the thing. I want to prevent the warlord rape nightmare that you were talking about. Yeah. That would be good. And I don't know that the way to do that is, you know, intersectional studies and, for, <laughs> you know, people to all talk about their, their, I mean, I understand everybody's been repressed. I don't even but, understand what intersectional is. That just appeared out of nowhere recently, didn't it? Well, it, would, well, it came out of feminism. And it, it, it makes sense in that it's, it's the particular intersection of gender and race and socioeconomics. I didn't even know the word until a few months back when I was asked to talk at an art gallery and it turned out it was an exhibition of intersectional art which we were in. Because pendrogeny is yeah. intersectional, Apparently. I guess. Except yeah. it's not. It's, it's, no. it's transsectional. I spent, I spent the whole time <laughs> explaining why it's nothing to do with gender at all, you know. And uh, that takes a lot of explaining. People, yeah. people are obsessed with fucking gender. I mean, for listeners anyway, how does... Oh, we're being listened to? Oh, yeah, shit. we are. But still, you got the mic uh, on. Well, Jay explained it very simply. She said, with you know, the gender, the idea of gender and transsexuality, etc., that's current, some people think, feel they're a man trapped in a woman's body. Some people feel they're a woman trapped in a man's body. A pandragine just feels trapped in a body. That's the difference. It's about 
self-designing regardless of gender of any kind. It's about looking at the self as an open, empty page, and deciding what that self can be, and then knowing that you could change it every day. As Jay said, there's no reason you should ever run out of people to be. But you don't have to cut and paste the body to be different people. No. Did I mention that? No. No. But for no, you guys, it's, it's, about, it's about how you perceive the self. And as Timothy Leary said so wisely, this time around you can be anybody. And that can mean literally anybody or any person. But what people seem to get hung up on is the either or still. Hmm. And the either-or is always going to be a trap, you know, and we're, we're interested in erasing the either-or on every level. So you don't think, I want to be a man or a woman, you think, I'd really like to have fur, but gills so I can live underwater, and hibernate so I can go into space, and then do it. Or not. Maybe just perceive yourself that way and see the world differently. Mm -hmm. So it's about a, constantly a constant awakening of how one perceives the self and that it's always in a state of flux and there are no definitions and you really can decide who and how you want to be every single moment and that that is an absolute right of consciousness. It's self-determination but in a very, in a deep way. Very deep. And lots of people find it really uncomfortable to be, to be given themselves back and say, hey, what, what would you like to be now? What name would you like to call yourself? Exactly. I mean, one of the, the, the first ways of liberating oneself from the culture is to change your name. You know, your family give you a name, they have expectations connected to the name, so it's a controlling hologram that's injected into you from birth. It might not be one you want to become. And so there are intersections. You might not want to become male. You might not want to become female. You might not want to become a doctor. You might not want to become a nurse. But those are just dressings around the core issue, which is to be completely self-determined in the moment and aware that that can change and you have a right to change it. determined? In other words, if the self, I, I've always felt that the self on some level is an illusion, that we're not really solo actors, that we're part of a bigger thing. Oh, then you get into the more exciting parts, don't you?
Because, well, as you know, with me and Lady J, the Pandragine became two becoming one. Which, it was, it's the 10th anniversary of her dropping her body. Uh, and we got... Today? No, yeah. um, October the 9th. She knows more about me than, than we do. So I got the two wedding rings. One was white gold, one was yellow gold. Mm -hmm. Made into one. Uh. It turned out that Pandrogeny be becomes latently relevant to all sorts of states of being. Two become one, and one is an organism, and an organism can contain many people. I mean, ultimately, the humane species is an organism, like an amoeba, a massive organism, and we're all little bits and cells of it. But we don't think that way. If only we thought of ourselves that way. So I started to do this show and call it Team Human to help to people to feel like they're on... Exactly. Well, the way we've been trying to explain it is if you look at something that's supposedly very primitive, like an amoeba, and we're probably completely wrong biologically, but fuck it. You know, an organism, if it's damaged, will will send all of its resources to that point of damage to heal it. Because it's in the interest of the whole organism. Mm -hmm. And if a part of it is not getting enough nutrient, it will find a way to send nutrient there in order to, to be as healthy as it can be. And if we look at the humane species that way, then whenever there's a place where we need healing, it would be in every part of the organism's interest to heal that piece. And if it needed nutrient, it would be in every part of the organism's interest to give nutrients to that part that needs it because it's better for the whole organism. And if we look at the species that way, it becomes altruistic and giving and highly efficient. But there's a... Because it doesn't destroy resources right. unnecessarily. But there's a, a misinterpretation of Darwin going around, particularly economically, that there's this, this is about survival of the fittest. No. And if those ones are, are dying or sick, well, we got to let them die, or be. You've got to let them die because they're the weak, they're yeah. the weak link, and the rest of us will be stronger. Which goes against every law of nature. You look at any forest, and the the large, you know, there's there's structures of mushrooms and fungus under the soil yeah. that bring the nutrients from the tall trees to the short ones in the summer because they're getting all the sun. Then they lose their leaves, and the short evergreens then transport their nutrients to the tall trees, so they need each other yes. to survive. Thank you, that's a great picture. And I think that's, that's where we've gone wrong. We're not looking at ourselves as a species. Right. Um, it's all about, you know, black and white, the either or male, female, Russian, American, right. and so on, and Catholic or Baptist, and on yeah, and on and which on. Which is all an extension of consumerism and neoliberalism. You know, and that's why I thought maybe the, the Europeans wouldn't be as uh, sickened by this worldview as we are. But I think they're, they're pretty much in the same... I mean, they have a few things going that we don't. The right to be forgotten online. And, they, you know, they have, they have different laws about the Internet. Oh, yeah. So they, can, they can't surveil people in Europe the same way, the same way they do here. Well, At least not, not knowingly. Not, yeah, not knowingly. <laughs> 
Exactly. You have to do it more, more surreptitiously. Or you have to break a law while you're doing it. Or you pay an American to do it. Yeah, there you go. So that, that to me is really where the crux of it all is. Is that we have to look at ourselves very differently. That the health of the organism is always in the best interest of everything. But the the kind of work that well, I guess what the work that you two did when it was you and Jackie was not individualistic anymore because at least it was two, mm. you know. And by two, I guess you Subsumed were implying into one. you were implying, and then the rest can do this too. That we can all yeah, impotentia. And not, as, not using the same symbolism either. You don't have to use physical uh, triggers, you know, visual triggers the way we did. It's a way of thinking. Like we said, change the way to perceive and change all memory. How you look at what's happened changes according to how you perceive it now. If we all started perceiving things as a species, we would look at history very differently. Actually, of course, we prefer the word a story, because there are so many. Mm. It's just hard to balance. If we then think of ourselves as this one big organism thing, then it falls easily into fascism or... Does it? Well, the, the Ubermensch and the, 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 you know, de Chardin and the, that we're no, evolving towards you, you a single... you have to take care of the, of the weakest. And, and be compassionate. It's based on a very deep compassion. Well, if it's a, yeah, if it's a giant decentralized networked organism, then it works. If it's being controlled, oh no, you know, by it. it would it would naturally be decentralized because everybody would be thinking in that way. Right. It would just be a way of living. It would be not even up for discussion. You would always do what was best for everyone. But you feel in, it's in from the smallest things in a family up to you know, larger things. You would say, what is best for everyone? Is there another place on the planet where we could do that with less damage? You know, if there isn't, then let's not do it. Can we look at what's going on now as the, the kind of the pulling back of the bow? So it feels like the reverse in order to launch us in a more positive place. You know, the, the, with like the transhumanists, etc. <sighs> Well, if not them, um, I mean more towards, uh, towards the kind of human-based future we're talking about. So we had uh, uh, Obama years, which in some ways were more hypocritical than the ones we're in now. Because, you know, Obama meant well and spoke the same way that we speak about the world, but espoused neoliberal values, finally. He was there to bail out Goldman and bail out the corporations and GM and really just... And drop bombs when necessary. And drop bombs and drones and everything else. So he had, he, he talked the talk inspiringly and better than I ever could, but his, his actions were to support the, uh, the, the global hegemony, the, the same old one. So Trump, on the one hand, Trump's people, the Bannons out there, they hate Obama and all of the international, you know, conspiracies that they see him as a part of and big business and, uh, and corporatism. 
and on the one hand expose that hypocrisy for what it is. On the other, what they want to replace it with is insane. I mean, it's an insane nationalism. But, you know, maybe it's, it's a process that needed to happen so that progressives or humanists could rise for themselves in a, in, you know, without some, some institutional, you know, corrupted Democratic Party behind them. The odds aren't very high. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we got, when we had but, Ronald Reagan, we got Mapplethorpe and Piss Christ and Punk and if we get Trump... We don't get nothing. People have stopped. You know, that, that's another thing that you must have noticed. Where's the rebellion? Exactly. Where is it? It's usually a street fashion, uh, a variation on some kind of alcohol or drug, and a sound, musically. That's not appeared as of yet. There are pockets, but the, what happens is it doesn't grow its, its muscle, muscles. You know, you've got noise music is a big deal in New York. And now there are noise bands everywhere because of the internet. So now everywhere you go, there's people with laptops who go, and it doesn't have any content. It doesn't have time to mature and, and develop and become a movement, a recognizable um, logo of an idea. It gets subsumed and consumed almost before it's happened. And so everything stays emasculated in this kind of soup of creativity. Well, it gets brought to the equivalent of the mall before it's even out. Yeah. They cut you off at the pass. So, we're curious to see if someone comes up with a way around that, where they can build a scene away from all those pitfalls. to create something that was indigestible yeah, well, by the mainstream. Like industrial. Too, right, too scary for, for them to put in the mall. Yeah, where Ro Rolling Stone never once reviewed uh, TG. Never once. They never admitted it was a valid form of music in the entire time. Mm. And then, last year, they said that Second Annual Report was one of the 30 most important records ever made. But they missed the whole thing in between. <laughs> they ignored, they ignored Bobby Grosso for 40 years. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, it means that on some level they understood that it was toxic to the corporate advertising environment that they were creating. So how does something like that happen again? You know, we, we, we started out separate from the scene. 
You know, we did our own gigs in buildings that weren't usually used for gigs. And we used our own equipment that we built at home and so on. And we developed our own sort of way of telling stories. And then a way of looking which was utilitarian. Cheap second-hand military stuff, which was the cheapest you could mm -hmm. find. And the strongest, you know, is meant to be abused and dirty. How do you do that again? Because mm. people are so, so, um, so keen to be recognized right. and be visible. They want the fame. That the if lights. they dress up in something that looks interesting, they put it on Instagram. And then if it looks interesting to someone else, they copy it. And suddenly it's been and gone. doesn't happen there if the internet now is AM radio. No, it can't happen there. So then, you know, Jay Babcock was right with Arthur magazine and yeah. saying this is going to happen. He, well, he was sort of into that folk revival, but it was also you know, Thurston Moore and others who were trying to get into acoustic, real world, small club. It needs some, some, some group of people or groups who are prepared to be out in the cold for a few years to build up a real underground following. It's also, we're not in a electronic age anymore. We're in a digital environment. In the electronic environment, you could resist. Yeah. Because like resistors, you know, resistance. In a digital age, you can't resist. There's no attenuation of digital. There's just on off. You have to oppose. And the programmers decided the parameters. Right. And that's that. Right, if they've contextualized what you do, then you're done before you've started. Once you agree to stay within their box. There's a, a modular synth, a synth module coming out in January of TG, which Chris Carter's helped design. And it's basically, I think it's 140 samples of TG sounds. And what do they do? They put it in Pro Tools or something? or? I don't it's know a thing? enough about it's, it. It's, a, it's, it's not a, an object. Yeah, it's, it's an a, object. It's a little modular thing that you slap into your, your oh. synth. And then you can make it do, it can go random. So you can just start building sounds out of TG sounds and then fuck with them. It'll be fun to hear if... Uh... Yeah, I mean, again, is that really the way to go? It is weird, though. It is a little bit like... Uh, uploading your consciousness to the chip. It's like, here's... Here's how we <laughs> did it. <Yeah. laughs> here's Dobby Gristle in a, in a module. Yeah. We don't need you anymore, Jen. Thank you very much. Oh, Edley used to joke all the time about when, when we'd have a cardboard cut out of me on stage and I wouldn't have to bother to turn up. <laughs> did an algorithm singing for you? Yeah. Not my idea of fun. There's nothing quite like walking onto a stage and five, ten thousand people start screaming your name. And it's affectionate. It's not just adoration, it's affection. You know? Pretty amazing feeling. 
and a big responsibility to try and live up to that trust. Mm. We have really great fans. And when we have the lights show up, sometimes you see Lady J, and, and I say, oh, Lady J's here tonight, and they'll cheer, because they know who we mean, and they, they're attached to the idea of J too. We've been working on that network, you know, making a loving, celebratory network where it's a safe place to be at least for a day or an evening. You can actually relax and not have to worry about whether you look cool or whether you seem smart or anything else. You can just be stupid if you want, like we are. said I was beautiful Nobody ever said they loved me No one said I was beautiful Until I met you Until I met you She was throwing pictures off the wall. Oh God, yeah, yeah. She's not been doing that lately. She's settled in since we went to Africa and got the Jumu. Little doll. This is Genesis Briar Piorridge, one half of Briar Piorridge. And we're glad to say we are part of this beautiful organism humane species, otherwise known as Team Human. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market